Well, good morning, Sailorville. Hope you enjoyed that baptism, did you? And I love that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. I remember the conference I was in when I uh, first sang that song many years ago, and I was uh, just, just blown away by the power of it and uh, the confidence of it, that God will hold us fast. Amen? Uh, let's, uh, let's begin our time here uh, with a word of prayer and thank him for his sustaining grace that holds us fast. Shall we do that? Our Father in heaven, we come before you today and we're grateful because of who you are. Uh, your promises are, are based on your person. When you could swear by none greater, you swore by yourself. That's what your word tells us. And because of that, Lord, we trust you. We trust your promises. And no matter what is happening in our lives, you hold us fast. And we believe that. Help us to believe even more so. And today, Lord, as we go back to your word and our study of Ephesians and, and the church that walks with you, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a, uh, you give us some clear insight into you, the person of Jesus, the picture of the, of the church, the bride of Christ, and marriage, sacred marriage, the mystery of it all, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 5. I like to, whenever I perform a wedding, I like to, during the rehearsal, I like to review some of the, uh, some of the historical and traditions around the, the, uh, the wedding ceremony. In fact, uh, a lot of people don't realize that even unbelievers are practicing a picture of the return of Jesus. Uh, so when a, a, a classic traditional wedding occurs, it's always the groom that appears first, right? He appears first, and then everybody sees the groom, and then the bride comes to the groom. This is a picture of the Bible where the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. He's our bridegroom, right? With a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, the bride of Christ, will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. It's all pictured in the, uh, in the marriage ceremony. There's other things as well, like the white runner is a picture of this being done on holy ground. The ring, which I've heard preachers say, you know, look at this ring is a, I can't remember the last time I took this thing off. Anyway, uh, you know, it's, it, it has no end. It's a perfect circle. It's just like your marriage. It'll be, have no end. That is not what this ring depicts, okay? Uh, rings in Bible times depicted authority. And I always remind the couples, these, this, those rings are a symbol of the authority that each of you have over one another's lives. But my favorite, uh, my, my favorite thing about the wedding is, is the point where I'm standing down here, and I always tell the, I said, this is awesome, because in just a few moments, uh, you, the bride, are going to lose your identity, that is your last name, into the name of your husband. And it's a picture of what we have in Christ. When we trust him as our Savior, our life is hid with Christ in God. Pretty cool. We're not looked upon as sinners, we're looked upon as, as saints, even though we're still sinners, right? 
And so I was, I, I was doing this running a few years back. It was in the house. There must have been about 50 people in this house. And I did not do the counseling with this couple, which was pretty obvious as the thing got going. Because I said, you're going to lose in just a few moments your identity in him. And she, she looked right at me and she goes, <laughs> she was keeping her maiden name. I had to do some scrambling in the moment. Ask me later how I survived it. We were warned by God in Genesis 3 that sin would really mess up marriage, and it has, hasn't it? And now, today, uh, we need reminding of the roles that the husband and the wife are to play, willingly so, in marriage. There are two key words in this passage which deserves a lot more time than I'm going to be able to give it, okay? And you know those words, but here they are, submit and love, okay? Wives are called specifically to submit. While both of us are called to submit in the 21st verse, we'll see that in a moment, husbands are specifically called to love, and both of us are called to love, are we not? But the specifics of, of submission fall upon the woman and the specifics of love fall upon the man. And the word submit, by the way, in this passage of Scripture is a, is a military term. It's the word hupatasso. It means to line up under. It, it means to, to place right underneath. It, but what I want you to know is not the fact that it's a, there is a command here for sure, but it's, a, it's, a, it's in the middle voice. The Greek language has a voice which tells you, you know, uh, which basically carries the idea of the, in this case, the attitude. The middle voice uh, conveys the idea in this word submit of, of, of a person acting of their own accord. There is a warm willingness in the submission. That's the idea here. It's not forced. It's a little bit like in Acts chapter 2, where after Peter preached the gospel, it says in verse 41, the New King James has the best English translation, I think. It uses two words. They who, apodexomini, those who gladly received his word, were baptized. And, and I say that the New King James has the word gladly. So it, 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 it sort of puts in there the attitude that's actually in the word. When somebody gets saved, they should gladly be willing to get baptized, amen, and identify with Jesus. That's, that's the idea here with submission, okay? And by the way, everything, if you were with us we, in our study of Ephesians, we just did a, a study of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, life in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. Everything from here on in is an extension of that. Uh, husbands and wives, kids, servants, all of us are to live all of our lives controlled by God, right? Would you agree with that? And so we don't want to lose that within the context. And that said, we pick it up in verse 21 where it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You know, if you think about it in the day in which we live, if you really want to be a contrarian in our culture, 
then submit because nobody else is. Wives, submit. I asked my wife just the other day, I said, here's my notes. I look over my notes and, and, and cut out anything you think would be offensive to the women from this message. Okay, so moving on to the husbands. really happened. I'm kidding. That didn't happen. Joking aside, our narcissistic culture that we live in has distorted the Bible's teaching on submission in general, and certainly in Christian marriage. That's why I started with verse 21, because everybody's called to submit. Again, this is not stubborn compliance, but it's joyful willingness not like the couple, and probably some of you have been there, who got into an argument, and the next thing you know, passive aggression took over and everything else, and they would not even talk to one another. They got to a place for a whole week straight where all they did was pass post-its to one another. Until finally, six days later, the, the husband had to get up at 5 a.m. to catch a flight. Knowing his wife was in the habit of getting up early, he wrote her a post-it and said, make sure you wake me up by 5 a.m. You can see where this one's going. 6 a.m., 7 a.m. He woke up at 8 o'clock, and he looked at the clock, and he was just furious, only to see a post-it that said, it's 5.30, wake up. <laughs> Pretty good. We're not talking about that kind of submission here, Okay. But those who are tempted to think that the Bible suppresses women are absolutely ignorant of not only the Bible, but history itself. In the Roman world of this day, when this was written, women were second-ranked citizens. They weren't even citizens. They weren't counted in censuses. Their testimonies were forbidden in court. They, had, they were on the same equal plane as a slave, in fact, a husband could sell his wife into slavery or even, under the right circumstances, have her executed. They served no roles in public, none. In most cases, they didn't even bear their own name. So like today, if your name is Julia, you, your dad's name was probably Julius. You were, you're, it was just feminized. Men never spoke to women in public. And we have a little inkling of that when we see John 4. Remember the woman at the well and the dialogue? It's like, what? You're what? what? Even Jewish men were not a whole lot better. Every day they would wake up and say, thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So when someone claims that the, Bible's, uh, the Bible su uh, subjugates women, they are exploiting their own ignorance, both of the Bible and history. So think about this with that backdrop in mind that I just gave you. Think about all that with this biblical backdrop in mind. The ge genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 has not just one, but several women. And not just Ruth and Mary, but Tamar who prostituted herself, 
Rahab, who made it a profession. And Bathsheba, of course. They, the Bible has them verbally and physically interacting with the Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Jesus freed women from accusation and condemnation. Yeah, right? He who has, is without sin, start checking, right? They followed Jesus. Luke chapter 8 tells us they, there was just a group of them that followed him. They were the last ones at the cross and the first ones at the tomb. And they were the first, remember that their testimonies wouldn't hold up in court, but they were the first ones to testify. He is risen. And of course, Paul said in Galatians 3, in Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Women, God's truth is your liberator. Believe that. Believe it. Additionally, men and women need to be submissive and to learn submission. It has its natural role in all of our lives. In fact, I could guarantee, even if you're the most rebellious person in here, let's just pick on the women for a minute. You're the most rebellious woman in here. Uh, I'm telling you, within 10 minutes of leaving here, you will be submitting. I guarantee it. Depending on what direction you're going in, you're going to encounter a red traffic stoplight. And there, you will submit. Oh, you don't have to. You could defy it, and then you'd have red flashing lights coming at you. And then, you'll submit. Oh, you don't have to submit there either. But then you'll have multiple flashing lights, maybe even a spike mat, and then you'll submit. Oh, you can defy that too, because we've all seen the videos of the, of the idiots running out of their cars, right? While the helicopter's chasing them around. Eventually they get caught, they're behind bars, and there they submit. Listen. We all have to submit, amen? We all have to submit. You say, well, I'm not running from the cops. No, it's worse. You're running from God when you won't submit to what his word says. And for some of you, it actually describes your life. And someday, someday if you continue to resist the word of God and the spirit of God in your life, you will, you'll be on the wrong side of Philippians 2. For every knee will bow and every tongue will confess willingly that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? And nearly every message on this subject, every commentary and every book on this passage starts with some disclaimer. It's unnerving to me, to be honest. Such is the abuse this passage has endured at the hands of ungodly men who envision themselves as me, Tarzan, you, Jane, whatever. And women who see themselves as 21st century prima donnas. Wives, your call to submission very simply and very quickly here is 
right out of the text. It's personal. Your call to be submissive is personal. Look what it says. Be submissive to your own husbands, not to somebody else's. It's spiritual as to the Lord, right? This is, you, you do this as a joyful act unto God. It's pictorial. Look at it, what he says here. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body, and he is himself its savior. Now, as the church, here's the picture, submits to Christ, so also wives should hupatasso come willingly under their husbands in everything. You picture to a watching world the church submitting to Jesus. It's a beautiful place to be. It's a great role. It's an honored role. And it's complete. He says, you're to do it in everything. Now, we don't, we, again, in everything. And that's just a general term. You, we ought to obey God rather than what? So if anything, you're, this is where the disclaimers come in. We're not talking about abuse. We're not talking about being told to do something that's unbiblical. But everything else you can obey. Now, what takes three verses with the women takes nine for the guys. You can go ahead and put your own little addendum to that. But let's look at the guys who, I remember old George Peterson, uh, old guy in the church I used to pastor, one of the most godly men I've ever known, bled scripture. I mean, just everything was scripture with him. And he used to say to me, I don't know why women complain. We have the harder, we have the harder task here. And I agree with them. We do. Here's what it says. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives. The way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife <laughs> loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Did you know that Jesus nourishes and cherishes his church? That's what the Bible says. Because we are members of his body, therefore, verse 31, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This is a mega mystery, a, a great mystery, a profound mystery. It's the Greek word mega there. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so husbands, here's the call. Your love for your wife must first be sacrificial. Uh, the word love, there are, there are, about, there, there are a, almost a half a dozen words for love. We only have one, you know. I love my wife and I love hamburgers. <laughs> Whatever. So they actually had different words for those kinds of things. And so the three main words were, were eros, uh, phileo, and agapao. So we, you're, you're familiar with them. The word eros is the word we get our word erotic. It means sensual love. 
That, that culture lived in the realm of Eros. Uh, and then there was phileo, which was the, really the highest form of love in the, in the, uh, in the Roman in the Roman and the Greek, Greco-Roman world. Phileo was really, in their minds, the highest form of love. It's a great love. It's that reciprocal love. I love you because you love me. You love me because I love you. It's the Philadelphia city of brotherly love kind of love. It's good love. Need it. Every marriage needs to have it, right? And then there's the one, the word used here is agape, that's the sacrificial kind of love. It's also a present active imperative, which means it's present tense. You have to keep on loving. It should be active, and it's, it's an imperative. It's a command. This is not, you don't get the option to loving of loving your wife. And just to, so you know, again, to, you gotta, whenever you're reading your Bible, you got to think like a first century individual, and they knew nothing of agape. In fact, it's arguably, it's arguable that they had never even heard the word. They didn't even know. We, we, we hear agape love. All of us have heard it until we don't even, we just, it's the one Greek word almost everybody knows. They didn't even know this word. It was so rare, much less what it meant. By the way, verse 33 says, remember he says, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she what? See that she what? Loves her husband, right? No, it doesn't say that. Respects her husband. It's always been very intriguing to me that the Bible never specifically commands the woman to love her husband. In fact, the early church apparently had classes where the older women taught the younger women to love their husbands. That's what we're told in Titus 2. You teach the older women, tell, tell the older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands. Why? Because it's not natural, because most of them have been arranged, and they're a bunch of ogres. Some of you are fit in that category too, so be thankful that your wife is still loving you. I'm looking at a mirror right now, so. But we're not talking about feelings here which erotic love would, would have, and so would phileo love. There is, there's a feeling there. there. Agapa or agape love, I'm not saying that God doesn't feel toward us. He certainly does. But Jesus didn't die for you and me because he felt like it. But this is the kind of love, I'm calling it sacrificial, but think in, think in terms of investing. It's investing love. And this means everybody, whether you're married or not married, we have to have an investment kind of love for one another. But in this case, we're talking about the, about the marriage. I did a survey in the first church I pastored of all the, the wives. I, I asked them what their greatest needs were in their marriage, and not one of them said sex. Disappointed the entire lot of guys. Not one, but every one of them said time. Every one of them said they wanted time from their husbands. So guys, love your wives with time. Time to do things for them, do things with them, pray with them, talk to them, listen to them, come alongside of them in this kind of love. And I told you, we're not going to be able to give it the time it needs. Sanctifying love is the second kind of love you should have. The, the word sanctify here, he said that they might sanctify her. You see that there in verse 26? That was actually a secular word. That was a secular word uh, used all the time. 
Okay, just all it meant was, was to, it meant you used it when you were talking about something that you would take and set aside for a particular use some other time. And so Paul saw, this is, this is a great word for, for the way husbands should roll with their wives. See them as somebody special, somebody that I set aside for God and love upon them. Uh, we are called men to be directly involved in the spiritual growth of our wives. Mark that down. You know that that's kind of strange. You, 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 you sanctify her having washed, cleansed her through the washing of water with the word. That's, a, that's an expression we don't see anywhere else. The Apostle Paul might have been thinking about a first century, the first century brides, both in Greco-Roman culture and in Jewish culture, they would take a ceremonial bath before the wedding. So it's possible that he has that in mind here. Either way, he's talking about the cleansing, the washing of water through the word. Did you know that the word of God, men, has is, is got all the spiritual pumice necessary for your own personal cleansing and for that of your wife? And you're called to apply the word of God. You don't have to be a scholar to be a sanctifier. Speaking the word of truth to your wives in love. Jesus said to his own disciples, you are already clean because of what? Because of the word I've spoken to you. So if you would speak the word to your wives, to your wife, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> Caught myself. That would help a lot. And finally, the third kind of way you love your wife is through self-love, self-love. Now, before you run me out of here for heresy, hang in there with me, will you? You saw it. I read it. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves what? He loves himself. Nobody ever hated his own flesh. He nourishes and cherishes it. Have you ever been to the gym? I go to the gym multiple times a week. I was just thinking about, I was thinking about this the other day. So I was watching the guys in front. There's mirrors everywhere in a gym. By the way, studies show that guys look in the mirror more often than girls. I cannot believe this, but it's true. And then I looked at myself and said, yeah, we do that. <laughs> and so anyway, I'm at the gym the other day. There's mirrors everywhere. And most of them are kind of subtle. You guys walk by and do a little flex here, you know, and walk by the mirror. I used to do it too, but it's always so discouraging. So... Uh, so I was watching these guys, and, they, and uh, <laughs> one, one young guy, and he was ripped. I mean, he was, just, he was just flexing away, and I thought, well, he can get away with it. I thought to myself, what if I could just, I'd just like this for one day, just take all the mirrors down. I mean, they're everywhere. Just take them down. I mean, just, I think we'd have guys kind of walk around. What do you think? No mirrors. We naturally love ourselves, do we not? And I, I always get a kick out as people say, well, you should love yourself. Jesus said you should love your neighbor as yourself. I, you idiot, that's not what he's saying. 
He's saying it's natural for us to love ourselves. And all, that's all Paul is saying here. If we loved our wives half as much as we loved ourselves, they'd be happier, more secure, and way more content. And the reasoning is pretty, it's, it's simple enough, verse 31, isn't it? I mean, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two are gonna become your one flesh. So the self-love becomes sticky love. They're joined. The word means to be glued. I just was in the hospital with somebody in our church, had a baby here just the other day, and, I, and uh, holding that baby and blessing that baby, I, I, I spoke to them from Psalm 127, except the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, stay up late. For he, God, gives his beloved sleep Lo, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. They're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. And I said to them, I said, you know, this is this little arrow here. You're going to be shaping, you're going to be shaping him, you're going to be sharpening him, and someday you're going to put him in the bow and you're going to let him go. And then you're going to run right alongside that thing, aren't you? <laughs> No, nobody ever did that because you can't. You can't. And you raise those kids to let them go. That's what it means to leave and cleave. Amen? I miss the great storyteller, Paul Harvey. He was a master storyteller. And you can still listen to his stories, and you should. He was the master of the pause. Every preacher should listen to Paul Harvey. He would, uh, he would have a, the rest of the story stories, and he would say, he, he would tell a, a vaguely familiar story. This is what he was famous for. Tell a, a vaguely familiar story while withholding certain key aspects of it until the very end. And then you have this big finish and this big reveal. I mean, you'd listen, you'd go, oh, you're kidding me. And then you'd hear that, uh, that, I, that iconic voice say, now you know the rest of the story. Do you know that the Bible tells us in verse 32 this is a profound mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And this is in the context of man shall leave father and mother, be joined to his wife, they become one. That's a quote from Genesis. That's a quote from Genesis 2. That's a quote from the very beginning of the Bible. And you think about that. In Genesis when God made Adam and Eve, he had his son and his son's church in his mind. And now you know the rest of the story. Are you in it? Are you in the story? Have you made the story? Have you placed your faith in the storyteller. It's one thing to know the story. It's another thing to know the storyteller. And we're not talking Paul Harvey here. But the Lord Jesus, 
who said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He is your true bridegroom. And if you've never placed your faith in the one who died and rose again for you, do so today. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask your blessing over every individual in this room. I pray for those who are single, have never been married, that you would bless them with the, with the conscious awareness of your promises and of, your, of the bridegroom, Lord Jesus, in their lives. I pray for those who are widowed and divorced. I ask that you would bless them and comfort them and again, affirm them and your love for them and the ultimate marriage that they have and all of us who know you have in Jesus. And then I pray for every marriage represented in this room that you would help the wives to have a glad submission to their husbands and the husbands to have a true agape love for their wives. We pray this for the one who loved us most, even Jesus, we ask. Amen. Let's all stand.